You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Global CSR Drivers Other sets of drivers are more global or external and tend to have an international origin. Remember, it is the varied combination of drivers that determines locality. The first driver is market access. The flip side of socio-economic priorities is to see these unfulfilled human needs as an untapped market. This notion underlies the now burgeoning field of the bottom of the pyramid strategies already discussed. CSR may also be seen as an enabler for companies in developing countries trying to access markets in the developed world. For example, a survey of CSR reporting among the top 250 companies in Latin America found that businesses with an international sales orientation were almost five times more likely to report on CSR than companies that sold products regionally or locally. The second global driver is international standardization. Codes are frequently a CSR response, especially in sectors where social and environmental issues are deemed critical, such as textiles, agriculture or mining. Often CSR is driven by standardization imposed by multinationals striving to achieve global consistency among its subsidiaries and operations in developing countries. For example, a study by Wendy Chappell and Jeremy Moon in Asia found that multinational companies are more likely to adopt CSR than those operating solely in their home country, but that the profile of their CSR tends to reflect the profile of the country of operation rather than the country of origin. The third driver is investment incentives. The belief that multinational investment is inextricably linked with the social welfare of developing countries is not a new phenomenon. However, increasingly these investments are being screened for CSR performance. Hence, socially responsible investment, or SRI, is becoming another driver for CSR in many countries. Often this is as a result of global SRI funds and indexes like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index and the FTSE for Good Index. But the influence of regional and national SRI instruments is also on the rise, with Brazil and South Africa among the first to go global in this respect. In addition, there are sector-based indexes emerging, like the ICT Sustainability Index launched in 2008. The fourth driver is stakeholder activism. In the absence of strong government controls over the social, ethical and environmental performance of companies in some countries, activism by stakeholder groups has become another critical driver for CSR. In developing countries, four stakeholder groups emerge as the most powerful activists for CSR namely development agencies, trade unions, international NGOs and business associations. These four groups provide a platform of support for local NGOs, which are not always well developed or adequately resourced to provide strong advocacy for CSR. The media is also emerging as a key stakeholder for promoting CSR. 
Finally, supply chain integrity is another significant driver for CSR, especially among small and medium-sized companies. These are the requirements that are being imposed by multinationals on their supply chains. This trend began with various ethical trading initiatives, which led to the growth of fair trade auditing and labelling schemes for agricultural products. Later, poor labour conditions and human rights abuses resulted in the development of certifiable standards like SA 8000. Major change has also been achieved through sector-based initiatives like the Forest Stewardship Council and more recently through the Walmart effect, which we've already discussed. This involves choice editing to source only from sustainable and responsible suppliers. Going native and becoming indigenous. Making these local drivers work in practice requires a special skill, which Stuart Hart, in his book Capitalism at the Crossroads, calls native capability. He explained it to me like this. Where multinationals have engaged with base-of-the-pyramid communities in rural areas or slums and shantytowns, it's almost always been through an NGO partner. They outsourced it to that partner. Very seldom would you see employees or staff from multinationals actually being in those places. But that's beginning to change. People from the company actually have to be in those spaces and develop relationships on the ground. You can't just outsource the work to NGOs and expect any capability to develop. So it's a really a new capability, says Hart, the idea of native capability or becoming indigenous, and it requires effort to develop it. But if you do it and you do it well, it can yield new business opportunities based on trust and social capital that makes you virtually impossible to dislodge. So from the standpoint of sustainable competitive advantage, becoming embedded in the community, developing that sort of social capital and trust and relationship is the highest form of sustainable competitive advantage. One of the companies that Hart is working with through the BOP 2.0 protocol initiative is SC Johnson, particularly in Kenya. I remember hearing a story told by one of the people working on this project which provides a perfect example of what locality and native capability is all about. He explained that SC Johnson saw great opportunities for selling their household cleaning products to poor communities in rural Kenya. However, after some consultation with the community, they quickly discovered that tackling hygiene and cleanliness issues of the communal toilets was their real top priority. Essie Johnson was delighted as they have a great range of toilet cleaning detergents and related products. However, when they brought samples for testing, the community was extremely disappointed. They don't work, said the community. But they must work, said Essie Johnson. We have tested them extensively in America and customers are very happy with the results. Well, they might work for the private toilets in America, said the community, but they don't work for the communal toilets in Kenya. Slightly nonplussed, S.C. Johnson went indigenous and sent a team to investigate on the ground. And indeed, on the ground was the key, because the walls and floors of the communal toilets were all made from dried mud. And surprise, surprise, S.C. Johnson's cleaning products weren't designed to work on mud surfaces. 
So they went back to the drawing board and designed something that would work. They had learned the lesson of developing native capabilities. One of the ways of assessing locality in terms of the UN Millennium Development Goals is a tool developed by Business in Development and Sustainalytics. It's called the MDG Scan. Companies can create an account on the website and insert key performance data related to the company's presence in developing countries. The MDG scan then converts this data into numbers of beneficiaries in developing countries whose lives have been positively affected by the company's activities. The scan measures the positive contribution to the Millennium Development Goals through a company's economic value added, employment creation, products and services, and community investments. It's by no means comprehensive, but for many companies, it will be a good start. In March 2009, Ted London also reported in Harvard Business Review on a framework he has developed, which is aimed at helping BOP Ventures assess the impact their initiatives are having locally, both in the short term and over time. It measures how a venture affects the well-being of its critical constituencies in three important dimensions, their economic situation, their capabilities and their relationships. Another initiative is the Impact Reporting and Investment Standards, or IRIS, being developed by the Acumen Fund, the Rockefeller Foundation and B-Lab, in conjunction with PwC and Deloitte. This is an attempt to better assess social and environmental impacts. Social Media Muddle one of the new Web 2.0 ways of demonstrating locality is using social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter and others. At one level, it seems a match made in heaven. As Jonathan Ballantyne reported for The Ethical Corporation in 2009, social media and sustainability share similar histories and future paths. Both started as bottom-up movements, both go against mainstream beliefs and both present the same sets of issues when integrating into a company's core values. What unites social media and sustainability is their focus on people as individuals. They also put a premium on cultivating long-term relationships based on value and trust as well as on building networks and communities. Everyone has a voice and every voice counts. Every voice is its own. Every voice is unique. In the CSR world, two of the most successful social media platforms are Just Means and Development Crossing. Just Means claims to be the world's leading resource of information and connections for people doing business better, and that through their site, companies are able to reach over 250,000 thought leaders. Among the interesting features on their site is that individuals can declare themselves as stakeholders of companies that are registered on the site by following their posts, in a similar way to Twitter. This is a convenient way for companies to spread their CSR gospel, be it their latest CSR report or press release, but they also have to accept the unfiltered public feedback from these self-selected stakeholders. In other Web 2.0 sites like Kiva.org, Global Giving, Donors Choose and Facebook Causes, locality is promoted by the fact that small online donors have the chance to see how their money is being used. 
The truth is that social media is still a double-edged sword as a glocality tool for companies. This was demonstrated dramatically by the Greenpeace campaign against Nestle in March 2010. I happened to be in Kuala Lumpur on my CSR Quest world tour at the time when the Greenpeace anti-Kit Kat campaign video was going viral on the internet. Together with Indonesia, Malaysia supplies most of the world's palm oil, an ingredient found in about one in every ten products we buy. Greenpeace accused Nestle of endangering orangutans through deforestation caused by its irresponsible palm oil supply chain in Indonesia. The concern is a real one. Between 1967 and 2000, the area under cultivation in Indonesia expanded from less than 2,000 square kilometres, or 770 square miles, to more than 30,000 square kilometres. Deforestation in Indonesia for palm oil and illegal logging is so rapid that a report in 2007 by the United Nations Environment Programme said most of the country's forest might be destroyed by 2022. The 62nd Greenpeace video, which was at the heart of their campaign, shows a bored office worker biting into a Kit Kat, and as he does so, it turns into the finger of an orangutan and crunch, the blood spills down his chin and over his clean white shirt. One estimate by Scott Douglas of Prezi calculated that within four days the Greenpeace report and shock video may have reached half a million people through social media like Twitter and Facebook. This viral effect was seemingly boosted by Nestle's attempt on its Facebook page to censor comments made by its critics including activists who had changed their Facebook profile pictures to a defamed logo of Nestle, which said killer instead. The fact that Nestle took swift action by dropping the accused Indonesian supplier, and that their hands are effectively tied by a lack of available sustainable palm oil, did little to quell the angry reactions of online activists. Greenpeace later called off the campaign, which Nestle Executive Vice President for Operations, Jose Lopez, says was achieved by putting on the table a very technical view of the issues we are talking about. We've demonstrated, he said, that we have a logic, a path and a process that drives continuous improvement into topics of high concern, which in this case is deforestation. Nestle's successful resolution of the matter does not take away the fact that social media is a tricky area for companies to master. For this very reason, we may see new emerging platforms like OpenEye World coming to the fore, where companies have a bit more control over their interactive spaces. A new way of seeing... OpenEye World has designed a technological platform, which they call their Sustainability Expert Exchange Network, or SEEN, to help companies to engage with stakeholders and CSR experts. Leveraging the power of crowdsourcing, OpenEye World's aim is to provide a trusted online exchange capability that allow businesses to engage with experts to design, improve, validate, and communicate their CSR practice. For example, companies can share a CSR report, a press release, a challenge they are facing, a campaign they are considering, or anything else they seek to gain deeper insight on. 
Whatever the type of content, the companies invite individuals and CSR organizations that were involved as validators, in other words, auditors or certifiers, to add their endorsement. Once the content is posted and supported, companies can then search the thousands of open-eye world experts to build the crowd that they want to engage with. These are sorted by selected issues, practices, industries, geography of impact, or other parameters. Whether the crowd is in the tens or the tens of thousands, the scalable platform allows the company to define the type of insight they are seeking by employing a variety of feedback mechanisms, including ratings, surveys or general comments. In the end, a company's brand equity is as unique as a thumbprint. Some that are already excelling in CSR may choose to leverage a global expert crowd as a way to maintain and credibly communicate their leading position. Others that are just beginning the journey might use it as a sandbox to play in, learning more about the CSR issues for their industry or particular practices. Either way, what's clear is that the power of Web 2.0 is on a confluence course with CSR through crowdsourcing solutions like this. Glocality in practice. I want to end this chapter with a few examples of glocality from my own experience. The first is something that occurred when I was working for KPMG. We had been brought in by the global mining and metal company BHP Billiton to review their performance on business in the community's corporate responsibility index. More specifically, they wanted to understand why they had performed so poorly when they felt their CSR practices were strong. After digging into BITC's assessment questionnaire, we put our finger on something that was quite interesting. At the time, it should be explained the BITC index was a UK initiative, with the scorecard reflecting regional concerns accordingly. In particular, there were many questions on the emerging agenda of energy and climate change. As a result, energy efficiency programs scored lots of points on the index. So what was the problem? Well, BHP Billiton was certainly not unconcerned about energy issues. After all, its new aluminium smelter in Mozambique was an energy-hungry beast. But it also happened to be located next to South Africa, which has some of the cheapest electricity in the world. As a result, energy efficiency was not their foremost priority in the region. Rather, it was the epidemic of malaria in Mozambique that was killing many of their workers and devastating their local communities. The company responded by developing a malaria control and treatment program, which was highly effective. In fact, it was one of their great CSR success stories. The problem was that the BITC index had not prioritized public health, so BHP Billiton, despite their laudable global approach, didn't get much credit for their CSR efforts on malaria. I hasten to add that BITC's revised Corporate Responsibility Index is today far more comprehensive and sensitive to locality. A second example is from a trip to Guatemala that I had in 2007 when I visited one of the local sugar plantations. They had kindly prepared a presentation on their approach to CSR and imagine my delight when I saw that they also have a CSR pyramid. 
The interesting thing, however, was that it was not Carroll's CSR pyramid or even my developing country's pyramid. Economic responsibility was still at the base of the pyramid, but the next most important responsibility was to families of their employees. The third tier was community responsibility, and rather intriguingly, the apex of the pyramid was engagement in responsible national policy development. Was theirs right and Carol's wrong? Of course, they were both right. That is the beauty of glocality. It's not an either-or mentality, but a both-and approach. The other interesting observation is that they had formed a cooperative of farms. Individually, they were too small to justify a CSR program, but collectively, it made sense. This brings me to my final example, which has to do with glocality through empowering SMEs to incorporate CSR. On a 2009 trip to Mexico... I became aware of some excellent work being done on CSR and SMEs by the Centre at Anahuac University. In response to a government-sponsored programme aimed at SME growth acceleration, the Centre for CSR put together an approach for supporting the business's growth through the implementation of a CSR business administration model that would develop competitive advantages for the company. Built into their business training program, therefore, were six elements for SME development. Self-regulation, stakeholders, human rights, environment, labor, and social or community impact. Working with the supply chains of big brands like Sony, Coca-Cola, and Cemex, the Center for CSR have taken more than 70 SMEs through the program, and with stunning results. On average, across the six CSR dimensions, the SMEs improved from a score of 23% to 43%, while simultaneously showing average annual sales growth of 30%. All of these examples show that it is not only imperative but entirely possible to adopt the CSR principle of glocality. Without it, companies risk being branded as cultural imperialists. But more tragically, they risk failing in their CSR efforts because they have not struck the magic balance between global principles and local application.